Portland lost a legend this week. Walter Cole was born in 1930 in Linton, just up, the, just up the river from here. Walter died Thursday at the age of 92. He holds the Guinness Book of World Records as the world's oldest living drag queen. And Walter's, Walter died Thursday, but Walter's creation, Queen Darcel 15, I think will live forever. Darcel 15 was born in 1967 on the stage of the Demas Tavern on 3rd Avenue over in Old Town. And that year, 1967, the year Darcel was born, Walter Cole was 37 years old. He had not yet come out to his family. He hadn't come out to his wife, Jeanette, to whom he stayed married until his death. 1967, some of you were there. These were dangerous times to be different. Certainly here in Portland, the OLCC, the Portland police were intensifying crackdowns on gay bars. Queer men and women were being arrested regularly on sodomy charges. The state had only just stopped the enforced sterilization of, quote, sexual perverts and moral degenerates. Two years earlier, that had stopped. So when Walter Cole put on a dress for the first time and began singing Barbara Streisand numbers in his inimitable gravelly voice, that was a dangerous thing to do. Coming out is a dangerous thing sometimes. Resurrection don't come cheap. There's an old tradition in the Eastern Christian tradition, Orthodox Christianity, that after Lazarus was raised from the dead, after Jesus calls Lazarus forth from the tomb, after the burial shrouds are taken from him and he was reunited with his sisters and his community, after that, the tradition goes, Lazarus never smiled again. I think the idea here is that the experience of death and resurrection so changed Lazarus that he was never really able to reintegrate back into the society of normal people, right? There remained this, this haunting sense of something left incomplete, a sense of longing for what lie behind. Lazarus, I think, was the first of the twice-born, we might say, those who have walked into death, symbolic or literal, an ending to everything they knew, and discover that death, that discover that life is not finished with them quite yet, and that there's this whole second act on the other side of the tomb, whatever the tomb might mean. Some of you know a little bit about this story. Some of you know a little bit what it's like to walk into death and then be pulled back, yanked back into life. This tradition is full of stories about people who find life in the face of death, so it's no wonder to me that queer people have always seen something that we recognize a little bit in the story from John's Gospel. It's not just the love that dare not speak its name, which is right there on the page in the Gospel, right? The love that clearly exists between Jesus and Lazarus. Lazarus is the only person for whom Jesus weeps in Scripture. That famous verse, Jesus wept, right? John eleven thirty five. Two words, shortest verse in the Bible. If you got gum and candy points growing up for memorizing Bible verses, that was a great one to pick, which is why I know it off by heart. Jesus wept, John eleven thirty five. 35. <laughs> and I think, I think the writer means for us to hear in that verse an echo of David weeping for Jonathan in Hebrew scripture. This is a grief that is so intense that it makes the people around Jesus a little bit uncomfortable. When Jesus demands then that the stone be taken away from his friend's tomb, the bystanders, I think, assume it's because he's so unhinged by his grief that he's not thinking clearly, right? That he's gonna enact some kind of gothic mourning ritual. Martha says, Lord, he stinketh. 
in the, in the King James Version. That's, that's, the, that's the one I like. Lord, you stink of. Our text is a little less slapstick, but the point is the same, right? Jesus, you're not thinking clearly. Jesus, whatever's happening here, this love isn't normal. Something about this explosion of grief feels a little bit off, a little bit threatening, a little bit queer. But Jesus insists. And this is where the story, to me, is more than a demonstration of divine power, more than a parable about life after death, more than a, a foretaste of Easter and all that is to come. This first resurrection, Lazarus's resurrection, comes about because of the love between two guys, something that is so powerful that social norms are laid aside and the conventional rituals of a decent Jewish burial service are forgotten. Lazarus, come out. That's what Jesus says. Be who you are. Be this resurrected body, one whom death has touched but not destroyed. Leave your closet. Leave your grave. Death has no power over you. There is, there is more for you to do in the world. I am not willing to let you go yet. It's like the queerest story I know in Hebrew scripture. And it asks me to think really deliberately about this cornerstone story of our tradition. It's the, it's the picture behind me, right? Easter, resurrection, everything that represents. What does, what does this big fancy word, resurrection, what does, that, what does that mean? Life after death, right? That's the way that we were taught to think about it. Resurrection is life after death. Pie in the sky with Jesus when you die. But in the Bible, when people are resurrected, they come back to earth as bodies, right? Not disembodied souls. They're walking around, bodies that other people can see and touch and experience for themselves, living, breathing people who have been unalterably changed. And I think we know a little bit about that experience, don't we? We know about living deaths. We know about hiding in closets. We know what it's like to bury yourself in a tomb. I mean, I don't know if Lazarus never smiled again. I do know that if you've lived even four days of your life inside the tomb of death, as Lazarus has done, even when you get a second chance at life, that experience changes you, right? Truly, you are never the same again. And there's also part of me that wants to push back a little bit at this tradition that Lazarus never smiled again. I suspect that's a story told by people who have not experienced for themselves what it feels like to come back from the dead. This is a man who has been given a second chance, one who has been born again, quite literally, one who gets to embrace his sisters, be reunited with his friends. In the story, Lazarus comes out as he was commanded to do. And that, I submit to you, is always a moment of joy. Coming out may come at great cost, as Walter Cole and so many like him have known. We may lose friends and family, some of us left homes, security, employment, safety, even our legal rights. And still we chose this life. We chose a life on the other side of death. We chose a, a different life, a more honest life, because we knew nothing was worse than living a lie. We know what it feels like to come back to life. We know how hard it is to come back to life. So this is a resurrection story, right? It's a miracle story. It is also a coming out story because every coming out story is a, res is a resurrection story. What Lazarus 
discovers, I think, what, what Darcel discovered, what I have discovered in my own experience, is that on the other side of every tomb, there's this beautiful, joyous, loving, campy, fabulous bunch of misfit toys, the, the confederation of the twice-born or the thrice-born, those who keep inventing and reinventing themselves as we chase God's crazy vision for us, God's dream of a, of a community that actually looks like the kingdom of God. This scene at the very end of the gospel story, the mummy who is being unwrapped by the bystanders, right? That's the best illustration I've got for the communion of saints. The ones who are there to unbind you, to take off the funeral bands, to set you free. I mean, that's, a, that's not a one-time event. That's a lifelong process, right? Shedding the stuff that hinders you so that you can actually stand before the one who called you out of that tomb and embrace him. And so our job, it seems to me, our calling, if you like, those who have experienced some version of this story in our own lives, our work becomes taking our place as an unwinder, if you like, as one of the unbinders, a member of this community that understands how to untangle the shrouds that are just no longer necessary. When Lazarus walks out of that tomb, John says, his hands and feet were bound by strips of cloth, and his face was wrapped in a shroud. Those details are significant, I think. Jesus says to his disciples, the ones watching, the other members of Lazarus' community, right? We might say, the church, right? This is our marching orders. Jesus says to us, unbind him and let him go. That is what we are here to do. There was a time, I admit this to my shame, there was a time, a decade or so ago, when it was popular among the younger queers in Portland, my friends and I, to dismiss Darcel and what we thought she was up to. As she herself observed in 2015, we've become so mainstream that we're almost boring. <laughs> and so that revolutionary bar over on 3rd Street, right, they were hosting a lot of bachelorette parties, the audience at her shows was largely made up of, of straight people, and we would say to one another, you know, that's not real queer culture, that's queer culture tidied up for straight people. And in the wake of her death, as these tributes have been pouring in from all kinds of people, right? As I've been reading, you have too, hearing these stories from, you know, gay people, straight people, people who encountered Darcel in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. I mean, this was, this was true for me. I bet it's true for a lot of us who grew up in this town. Darcel was the first queer person I knew, right? I knew who she was before I knew what it was to be gay before I knew what it was to be queer, before I got all hung up on hiding in closets, before all of that, Darcel represented a different possibility. Men could dress up differently. I mean, why do you think I'm up here in a frickin' dress? <laughs> so she meant something to us, right? A lot of us in this town, whether or not we shared all the parts of her story and her identity, I think there's a reason that so many bachelorette parties happened at Darcel's. I think women saw something in her that they recognized. My sense is a lot of straight guys saw something in Darcel that made them think again or entertain a different set of possibilities about what it means to be a man. Darcel opened something up in this town for a lot of us, queer and straight alike. She was like a, she was like a prophet in wig and high heels. She called us out of our tombs, singing in that inimitable voice. And when, when we found the courage to come out and join her then, it was Darcel and people like her who were there to unbind us and let us go. So now, 60 years after she first took to the stage in 1967, despite all the changes this world has seen, drag panic is back. 
2023 promises to be a banner year in anti-LGBTQ legislation. The ACLU is tracking 450 bills across the nation targeting queer people, 45 out of 50 states, that includes Oregon. 20 states have either passed or will vote on legislation that would criminalize performances where artists perform a gender identity different from that assigned to them at birth. So the artist I sometimes dismissed to my shame as a throwback or an echo from a different time, suddenly Darcel and everything she stands for matters to me in a whole different way. I'll be honest, I don't know if I believe anymore that the moral arc of the universe inevitably bends towards justice. I think that sentiment does an awful lot to erase the very hard work that a lot of people have done and continue to do to make sure that justice is a real possibility. The world of 1967, the world of the closet, that world feels uncomfortably close to us right now. And yet there are these, there are these signs of light. OPP did, did a documentary about Darcel a couple years ago, 2015, the Supreme Court had just passed marriage equality, there was a sense of pride and achievement, like finally we'd arrived, and there's this clip in the documentary where a member of the audience at one of Darcel's shows one night asks the venerable old queen, why Portland? As if to say, why, why set up shop here? What, what about this town made Darcel possible? And she repeats the question, why Portland? And then kind of gestures all around her as if to say like, honey, look at this place. This city is the weirdest, motliest, Looney Tunes village of queers that America has ever seen. I mean, I think about that moment a lot when I think about what Trinity Cathedral has meant in this town and might now need to mean once again for all kinds of people in our state, in our church, in our, in our world, so scarred by anger and hatred and willful misunderstanding. What can we get away with here that other parts of the world can only dream about? What, with a patron saint like Queen Darcel, who might we be called to be? What might we be called to do? Because I think she pulled this town out of a kind of civic she showed this town what it looks like to live a true and honest life, what it means to, to follow, if you like, a true and living God, a savior who is real and has a body. I mean, I don't think Dar Darcel considered herself to be a Christian. That does not matter to me. She embodied, at least she did for me, what it means to do the work of the gospel, which is to proclaim good news to captives, recovery of, of sight to blinded ones, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of God's favor which is just another way of saying, you can be fabulous. God is calling you to be fabulous. So come out of your tombs and live.